Uh, well, welcome to our, our gathering. Uh, we're going to continue in our series, The Work of Christ, this morning. This will be our 10th sermon or message in this series, uh, which means that we have basically one left. So we started off with 10, I added one, so we have 11 total, and uh, Lord willing, we'll be wrapping that up uh, next Sunday. So this will be our 10th, and this morning we're going to be looking at the ascension, the ascension. Uh, we just had a scripture read to you, Acts 1, 9 through 11, which talks about that briefly. When we speak of the ascension of Christ, we are speaking of his return to heaven. That's basically, in theological terms, what ascension means. Whenever you hear that term in Christian circles or in Christian categories, it has to do with Jesus going back to heaven from which he had come to us originally through the incarnation. So it has to do with him going back to heaven. Chronologically speaking, or in terms of timeline, the ascension of Jesus Christ took place 40 days after the resurrection. So you had the resurrection, and then he appeared to all these different folks, and 40 days later he actually ascends up into heaven. And that's interesting if you think about it. We, we, we would kind of think if you're familiar with Scripture or the story at all, you'd think, well, he rose from the grave, and then just a couple of days later he went back to heaven. It was actually 40 days. It was over a month. And what did he do during that time? He appeared to people and obviously encouraged his disciples and did things like that. I would say that the ascension marked the end of Christ's earthly ministry and obviously the beginning of several other important things. Uh, we tend to think of the resurrection as being kind of the capstone or end of his ministry, but really the ascension is it's when he left the earth, when that incarnational period ended and he went back into heaven. That's pretty much when his, his earthly ministry ended. So when you think of ascension, think of him going back and think, him of, think of that as being the end of his earthly ministry. That's not to say that he doesn't still minister on earth, but in terms of him being here in the flesh, there's the difference. Among Christians, the ascension should be considered one of the most important events in history and one of the most important doctrines of our faith. Uh, sadly, it is not esteemed this way. In fact, it is one of the most neglected events and doctrines of our faith. Uh, you just think about it, when's the last time you heard a message on the ascension? And basically inflicting guilt upon myself, because you guys primarily come here and I preach all the time, and I don't talk about it very often. It's not a subject that comes up very often in, in the church or in, from the pulpit. And that's kind of a sad thing, because it really is an important event in doctrine, as Christians, we tend to emphasize, you know, the cross more than anything else. And on occasion, we emphasize the resurrection, which is another critical doctrine that doesn't get enough attention. Uh, and so that's just kind of what we do. We always focus on the cross and the redemptive work that Christ did there. That kind of just blinds us or maybe captivates our attention so much so that we don't pay attention to all of the other wonderful things that he did. And that was kind of the purpose of this series, was to highlight some of the major events that took place that he was involved in during his ministry so that we could see that, you know, he, he's actually done more than the cross. Uh, but we do emphasize the cross above all else. On occasion, we talk about the resurrection. The ascension, however, usually gets little to no attention. Uh, you might or might not be aware of this, but we actually have a holiday called Ascension Day. Obviously, we have Christmas that focuses on his birth. We have, you know, Good Friday that focuses on his death. We have Resurrection Sunday, Easter that focuses on him rising. But we actually do, Christians have throughout the world, they have a holiday called Ascension Day. And uh, it just basically took place last month on the 5th. So, got to admit to you, got to be a little transparent, didn't even realize it. How many of you didn't realize it? Kind of came and went, had no idea. So you, you get my point. It's not a doctrine or an event that we really focus on. But I tell you, we certainly are about Christmas, aren't we? And most of the time, not for the right reasons. You know, we get all wrapped up in the present thing, the consumerism. 
So we, we really, I didn't notice Ascension Day on May 5th. So hopefully, through God's Word and through a, an examination of this event and doctrine, hopefully today we will uh, maybe gain a new understanding which will lead to a new attitude about that event and doctrine. That's kind of what I'm aiming for this morning. I know that that's been my experience through this week as I was writing this message and studying. I want to, you know, I want to recognize what God has done and celebrate all that he's done. And so that's kind of the goal here today. I'll just pray one more time. Father, open our hearts and minds to the truth. Send the Holy Spirit in power. Uh, May we come out of here a little bit more like Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. After the Last Supper, on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus told his disciples that he was about to leave them and go to the Father. Now, he had said something like this during the Last Supper. He said something in between the Last Supper and Gethsemane too about it. He had said this several times to his disciples, and, 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 and he definitely said it while they were in transition from one place to another. He says, you know, I'm going to leave you, and I'm going to go to the Father. It's kind of like he said, you know, in a little while, you see me now, but in a little while you won't, and then you will again. I've read that text like ten times this last week. It just confused the heck out of me. But what he was essentially saying is that I'm going to be leaving you to go to the Father. And I would say to the disciples, their point of view, this was like the worst thing that Jesus could say to them at that point. You know, they just had this weird encounter with Judas who got up and left during the supper, and there was this weird talk about how somebody was going to betray him, and, you know, he'd, he'd mentioned already a few times of going into Jerusalem to die, you know, to be betrayed and die and all this. So they, he was saying all these things that were very conflicting for them. They could not imagine Christ being gone or leaving Uh, they did not understand fully why he came or any of those sorts of important things, and so they just could not even begin to comprehend the idea of him leaving. In fact, they had kind of the the wrong view of redemption, that, you know, he's come and he's going to conquer all our enemies and establish his kingdom. He had that sort of Jewish mindset. So, you know, there was nothing redemptive. There wasn't any redemptive value to him leaving. You came, it's been amazing, we don't ever want you to go, because I I suspect that once you've tasted and seen the Lord is good through Jesus Christ, you you don't ever want that to end. We can experience that now on this side of glory. Some of us are, but for them it was like, no, man, are you kidding me? He had mentioned similar things like this before in the past, and even Peter was like, well, I'm not going to let that happen. Well, get behind me, Satan. So they didn't want him to leave ever couldn't imagine how his departure would be of any benefit. But Jesus did explain that it was to their advantage that he depart. And he also gave them sort of a prophetic insight in that he said that your sorrow, because you're going to be sorrowful, you're going to mourn my departure. It saddens you now even as I tell you. Let me tell you that your sorrow will soon turn to rejoicing. They just did not understand what he meant. They didn't get it. Sorrow, I'm feeling terrible, you're going to leave. How how am I going to feel good about you leaving? They just didn't get it. They did not understand the ascension and what its implications are and what it means. And in so many ways, the church today does not understand what the ascension means and its implications and the benefits that come to us through it. We have the same perspective as them in a sense. Not that we're mourning the Jesus leaving. We just really don't understand why he left. Why he went and what he's doing. R.C. Sproul said, Many believers exercising their proclivity for nostalgia wish they could have been alive during the earthly sojourn of Jesus. Yet, we should understand that his ascension and absence from this earth is better for us right now than his presence was during the first century. Now, when I read that, I thought, heresy, what are you talking about? Are you undermining the work that he did when he came, the cross and all that? How can you say that him leaving, it's almost as if he's implying that it would have been better if he'd never come in a way. I was like, wow, that's just a weird statement. I don't get it. It's kind of controversial. But Sproul was not downplaying 
the first visit of Christ or His presence or His work. No, He wasn't doing that. He wasn't referring to the work of Christ. He was referring to His earthly presence for that 30-some-odd years. His earthly presence during that time benefited only those around them. I'm not talking about His work. I'm talking about His presence. Those who came in contact with Him, those who followed Him around, those who interacted with Him, those are the people that benefited from His earthly presence in a direct way. The lepers, the invalids, the demoniacs, you know, His disciples, the broader group of disciples, and so on. Those are the ones that were directly impacted and benefited from His earthly presence, and them alone. But His ascension... And his absence, if you want to put it that way, has benefited millions and millions and millions, even you and I. During the ascension, and just one example of that, during the ascension, or right about that time, there were about 120 disciples in Jerusalem. We've read about it in the First chapter of the book of Acts where, you know, they gathered in the upper room at that nice house and 120, 120 Christians in Jerusalem. Maybe a few more on the outside, but not much. Okay, those were, that, that was the extent of Jesus' evangelistic effort during his physical presence. 120 converts. You see, Jesus didn't come to evangelize the world. That's our job. He came to live a perfect life and to earn our righteousness, to die on a cross, to pay our sin debt to God, to rise from the grave and seal all of that, to conquer sin, Satan, death, and hell. That's why he came. He didn't come to evangelize. I'll tell you what, if you were to measure his evangelistic method and style and the outcome of it, any evangelist today would say he was a dismal failure. 120? That's nothing. 2,000 years roughly after the ascension is absence, there are millions and millions of disciples throughout the world. Christ has accomplished more for His glory, more for His kingdom, more for our joy in the world through His absence than He ever did through His earthly presence. Now I'd say that that makes the ascension pretty important. Wouldn't you? It was on May 5th, just so you know. Didn't even realize it. The holiday, that is. That is Sproul's point. He's not trying to downplay or undermine the work of Christ. He's just saying his physical presence, comparatively speaking to his absence, so much more has been done in his absence than was in his presence. That's all he's saying. In John 16, 20, Jesus said that his disciples would weep and lament his departure. He also promised that their weeping and lamenting would soon turn to rejoicing. We, we see evidence of this switcheroo, if that's what you want to call it, in Luke 24, 50 through 52. It says, then Jesus, I think it says he, but it's Jesus, then Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. Speaking of the disciples, while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. There's the ascension. And then it says in 52, and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Somewhere between Jesus' words on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane and the ascension, the disciples' understanding of the ascension and his departure and their attitude, those things, it changed. I mean, we kept telling them, I'm going to leave you, I'm going to go to the Father. Oh, this is terrible, it's horrible. But by the time it actually happens, they're rejoicing. They go into Jerusalem, they're pumped, they're excited about him leaving. They went from sorrow to great joy, just as the Lord had predicted. What caused this change? Well, I suspect that it might be tied to Luke 24, verse 45. Right before the ascension, Jesus did something for the disciples that helped them understand 
what the ascension was about and what it would lead to and the benefits that would come from it. It says in that text, he opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures. What a gift that was. That's the gift of revelation. Jesus basically laid out the Old Testament for them because when you see Scripture, the word Scripture mentioned in the New Testament, it's usually a reference for the Old Testament and sometimes to Paul's writings. He just opened up the Old Testament for them, its prophecies and how it points to to his person and work. Well, this is what the cross means. This is what the burial means. This is what the resurrection means. This is what the ascension means, etc., etc. Just taking the Old Testament scriptures and prophecies, what it says, and tying it to him and his ministry. That's what he did for them. This moment of divine revelation may have been what transformed their understanding and attitude from sorrow about his departure to joy over his departure. I think that's key. I like how a guy named Keith Whitfield put it. The ascension of Jesus produced joy because the disciples realized what amazing benefits would come to them when Jesus returned to the Father. It's a good way to put it, pretty generic. Well, this morning, I'd like to attempt to show you what the ascension reveals about the person and work of Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you ten ascension truths. Ten ascension truths. And my hope is that we will grow in our understanding of this monumental event and this vitally important doctrine so much so that it produces rejoicing in us. And through us, like it did with the disciples many, many years ago when they were standing up on the Mount of Olives as it took place. Now, you know that we've been kind of switching back and forth in this series from expositional teaching to topical teaching. Uh, And this subject of the work of Christ probably needs to be handled more topically. Uh, I don't know. I like the exposition. That's what we tend to do here. But this will be more of a topical thing. So bear with me. But be ready maybe to write these things down. Okay, these are ten ascension truths. Ascension truth number one. The ascension shows that Christ is our victorious King. That's what the ascension shows us. It's one of the things that it shows us. Psalm 68 verse 18, which is a messianic prophetic psalm that has to do with the work of Messiah. 68.18 says, you, and this is speaking of Jesus directly, so many years before he came and so many years before he ascended, it says, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train. That would mean following him. Now, you just got to know what he's talking about. This is a victory psalm. This psalm has to do with uh, whenever one of the ancient kings would win a victorious battle over a foe or over another people, he would come through and they'd throw a huge coronation, a huge, uh, well, coronation, I guess, parade, if you will. And he'd be up at the head of it and he'd have his armies behind him and he would have uh, he would have his, the POWs behind him, the soldiers that, from, the other, from the enemy that they captured, that they were either going to imprison or kill. And then he would have the soldier, his own soldiers that had been captured during the battle. He would have set them free, and he would be parading them before his people too. So you got the king, you got this huge processional. It was quite an extravaganza. The Romans were really good at it. And in a similar way... The ascension shows us that as Christ entered into heaven, he was leading a victory parade in a sense. With the exception that, yes, he totally is a victorious king in that he he won the victory against sin, Satan, death, and hell, but his captives are those whom were under the bondage of sin, Satan, and hell, and death, and these things. And, And so what does that mean? Those whom he set free, that's us. 
So his ascension is like a coronation in a way, but it's like a victory parade. He goes off into heaven and, and in some kind of a spiritual deeper way, it represents this victory of an earthly king. And, and we're the ones that he set free and we're the ones that he, he, he defended and, 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 and destroyed the enemy and got us freed and, and he, he brings us home back to our native land, back to our place, if you will. There's the parallel. A victorious king out in front leading the procession and it's the entire church that's envisioned in that psalm that's behind him. And that's, according to Revelation 7, 9, a vast multitude. And is it, you know, did it happen in some kind of a physical way? We're all there? No, it's a spiritual thing. But that's the parallel. But Christ, during the ascension, he was portrayed as or seen as this victorious king. But it'll also happen in the future again. Revelation 17, 14, it says, They will make war on the Lamb. These are all the enemy nations. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. Now, he's talking about here, John, who wrote Revelation under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's talking about the return of Christ. Not the rapture, but the actual second coming of Christ, the return where Christ comes and deals a death blow. He comes on a white horse in full judgment and wrath and deals a death blow to all, you know, the Babylon of, of that era, so to speak. All the enemy nations conquers and subdues them and he'll have his angel armies with him. And, and there's a mix of saints and angels in this army. He won a victory during his first coming and he'll win another victory at his second coming, he is our victorious king. Ascension truth number two. The ascension shows that Christ is supreme and above all. And the doctrinal term we use for that all the time here is sovereign. The ascension shows that Christ is sovereign. 1 Peter 3.22 who has, speaking of Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So what Peter's talking about here is during the first coming, during the incarnation, Christ exercised sovereign power over demonic forces. And the greatest evidence of this is by how many exorcisms he did. I mean, he's just casting demons left and right out of people. Even the demons knew he had authority. They were frightened at his name. You know, you think of that legion of demons in that demoniac, you know, over in, uh, I can't think of the name of the place right now, but on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus comes over there, and the demons that are in this man are so frightened of Jesus, they're like, don't destroy us, send us into that herd of pigs. I think it's Gadarene is what the place was called. And when he was here, he exercised sovereignty and power over demonic forces. In fact, he won the decisive all-time victory over them at the cross and through the resurrection. The ascension highlights this in the fact that when he came, he came as this victorious king who is sovereign, who exercised ultimate power over the forces of evil. The real trick here is that it says in 1 Peter 3.22, he is at the right hand of God. That is the place of ultimate authority. He's seated at the right hand of God, which shows that he has sovereign control over the universe, over creation. Ephesians 1, 20 through 22 also makes this point. God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. There it is again. He ascends. He takes his seat at the right hand of the Father, exercising ultimate authority Power, sovereignty over creation. Someone once said that, you know, even the very air you breathe 
belongs to him. And if you attempt to breathe apart from him, you'll suffocate. He's, it's all him. He's sovereign. He's over it all. The ascension shows us that. Ascension truth number three. The ascension shows that Christ returned to glory. That he returned to glory, which means that he must have stepped out of glory and left glory. He is the eternal son of God. He was there long before. There's no timeline on that. Before the incarnation, he was in radiant glory. Then he stepped out of that. He became a man, and I don't know about you, we should all realize that as men and women, we're not all that glorious. There's no glory in humanity, especially fallen humanity. There was glory in humanity before the fall with Adam and Eve, but that got sucked up. But the ascension shows that Christ returned to glory. John 17, 1 through 5, and this is really interesting. During his high priestly prayer, he prayed that as he went to the Father, that God would, the Father would restore his glory. He says, it says this, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, there's another statement of sovereignty, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus, whom you have sent. You ever want to tell people what salvation is? Tell them it's about knowing the true God and knowing the Son whom he sent. There's salvation. He says it right here. And then he says in verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you have given me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence, there's the ascension, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Wow. And there's another really, really interesting verse that highlights this, and I love this one. Acts 1.9. It says, and when he had said these things, it's speaking of Jesus, this is right at the ascension, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, there's the ascension, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Was this a rain cloud? Was this a storm cloud? Jesus made this very interesting exit. You know what cloud this is? This is the Shekinah glory cloud. You think of back in, during the Exodus, they were led by a pillar of fire and a cloud. That's the Shekinah glory of God. God appears in the cloud. It happened during the transfiguration. They were up on that mountaintop. We talked about this several weeks ago, did we not? And Peter's rambling on and stumbling through his words, acting like I do at a place where it's very awkward. Right? And God, the cloud comes and kind of envelops the whole top of the mountain. And God speaks this is my son. Hey, Peter, basically, translation in the English, shut up. This is my son. Listen to him. That's the Shekinah glory cloud. And, and how, how, was, how did Jesus exit the earth? How did he ascend? In glory, in the Shekinah glory cloud. That alone proves that he left and his glory was reestablished or given back to him in a sense. He returned to glory and his exit proves that. His prayer proves that. His presence next to the Father in radiant glory proves that. He went back and his glory was restored. And I'm mystified and blown away by the fact that he was willing to give it up for 30 some odd years and to suffer in my place and to take my punishment, my scorn, the wrath that's due me. I just can't even get my mind around. How, why would you leave that atmosphere and that radiant glory where the angels never stop singing about how awesome you are? You left all that to come to this dump and to deal with this dump? Well, you know what? His humiliation, because that's what he experienced during his life on earth, right? During the incarnation, it gave way to glorification. He was in glory. He was humiliated. He returned to glory. And he did that for you and I. The ascension shows it just in the way that he left, in the Shekinah glory cloud. Amazing. 
Ascension truth number four. Another, just, I'm like, why did I miss May 5th? You know, why don't I talk about this doctrine more? What a dummy. You know, every one of these things is just like a 357 round. Bam! Jacking me up this week. Number four, the ascension shows that Christ completed his atoning work. It shows that he completed his atoning work. Hebrews 10, 12 says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Basically, what the Hebrews author is saying is after he made the atonement on the cross and rose and did all that stuff, he came up here and sat down, which means the atonement is done. It's a finished work. Now, his applying it to people is not finished because he's still saving people, but the work itself is finished. It's just now being dispensed. This is one of the great tragedies of some of the Christian religions out there, even in, you know, I'm going to be as sensitive as I can, but in Catholicism, they do not believe that his atoning work is done. That's why they portray him on the cross still. He's still up there suffering for us in some kind of metaphysical or spiritual sense. He's still up. Why, does, why do they have him up there doing that? Because we still sin and they believe that it's not a once and for all. It's you better confess and he's got to keep, you know, he's got to keep covering that for us. And that's why they depict him on the cross still. But right here in our text, it says once it was done, he went down and sat down. What does it mean to sit down? It means you're done with that work. I don't know how people miss this stuff. It's a terrible, terrible thing to suggest that the work of Christ is not complete or that it's inadequate. Another hit, purgatory. The idea that what he did is not enough, so you need to go through a refinement period before you can enter heaven. These things are just, I'm sorry, with all due respect, they're horrible and they're so misleading. We have a perfect Messiah, a perfect Savior, a perfect atonement. And we're shown right here in this text that it's a done deal because his work is finished and it's represented in how he sat down. He didn't stand back up, come down here and climb. Oh, Phil sinned again. Got to get back up on that old rugged cross. It's done. And if it ain't done, we're done. We're in big trouble if it ain't done. His atoning work is complete, represented in how he went up there and ascended and how he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Very important that we don't miss that. Maybe, maybe we have an upbringing, maybe we came up in Catholicism or some other religion that teaches these things, but it's not scriptural. We need to yield and submit to scripture. If we don't get these things right, it could be a matter of life and death. Literally. Literally. I rejoice in the fact that his work is done. And I rejoice in the fact that he's still applying it to meet heads like me. And you. That's, that's, that's just amazing. Ascension truth number five. The ascension inaugurated Christ's ministry as our great high priest. Okay? That's the beginning and starting point for his his ministry. We talked about the Munis triplex several weeks ago, the threefold office of Christ, right? You know, prophet, priest, king. His priestly duty in heaven for all of his people, the ascension paved the way for that, and that began after he took the right hand seat next to the Father. Hebrews 4 14 through 16. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect, uh, one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace uh, to help in our time of need. He ascends, takes the right-hand seat, which is the king of king position, the lord of lord position, the sovereign position, all this. It's also 
the throne of grace that it's referred to here. You know, that throne that Jesus has sat on from all eternity and stepped off of for 30 some odd years, that's, it wasn't the throne of grace until he came down and gave grace and gave his sacrifice and then went back up. When he sat down on it, it's become the throne of grace. That was a throne of judgment. And as our great high priest, he sits down, it's transformed from a judgment seat to a seat or a throne of grace where he ministers to his people. He has an ongoing ministry to us today. And you might say, well, then how does he minister to us? How how does he act and live out his priestly duties. Well, he does it in a number of ways, and I'd say the primary way that he does it is through intercession and prayer. You see, we have a a doctrine in Christianity or in the faith called the perseverance of the saints. And what it means is that the person who is truly Christian, truly converted, who believes, they will persevere through their life. They will not lose their faith. It has to do with eternal security. They will live out their life. Their faith will remain intact and they will go off into glory and then into the, you know, the second kingdom and all that stuff and the eternal kingdom and all that. It has to do with that. The grand question is how does the sinner who's been saved by grace, how does the believer persevere? Does he persevere under his own power and strength and through his own piety? Are you kidding me? If that were the case, I'd be pretty good on Sunday. I'm here doing this. By tomorrow, see you later. I don't cause myself to persevere. You don't cause yourself to persevere. Now, I will give a little room for sanctification. That's another doctrine. We are involved in that as we read the scripture and engage in the means of grace that God has given us as gifts. We do grow in our faith. We're responsible for that to a degree, but we do not cause ourselves to persevere. The perseverance of the saints isn't based on our work. It's based on Christ's ongoing work. And the great evidence for this Uh, we see in an amazing example that takes place during the Last Supper. Judas has, you know, already been pointed out as the betrayer, and Jesus says, go do what you're going to do. He leaves. There was another person in that room sitting at that supper table who was going to betray Christ, and his name is Peter. And Jesus looks Peter in the eyes and says, I know you're mixed up about that guy, but you need to Concern yourself about yourself because I'm telling you, you're going to deny me three times before 3 a.m. tonight. He says, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. How would we translate that? Destroy you, destroy your faith. But he says, I have prayed for you that after you have returned, it's going to be hard, but after you've returned, you'll care for your brethren. I have prayed for you. What does that mean? It means if Christ isn't interceding on our behalf, we do not persevere. If he isn't up there offering continuous prayers for Phil as I navigate in this difficult world and engage in stupid stuff and in good stuff and struggle and wrestle, if he isn't up there interceding, my faith will go away. I will stifle it and crush it. I will suppress the Holy Spirit. But you see, he's up there countering what I do through his intercessory prayers. Just as he prayed for Peter, he prays for you, believer. What's the difference between Judas and Peter? Judas didn't get prayed for, did he? No, he didn't. That's a tough one to swallow. He was a son of perdition chosen from eternity past to do what he did. There was not going to be any you know, any sort of prayer made for him to rescue him out of his situation. You may not like that reality, but God does what he wants with his creation. But the one whom God had chosen before, before the creation of the world, Peter, Jesus was there to sustain and to pray for him so that he could persevere, even though he was going to still make that mistake and blow it and get mixed up and be heartbroken over what he did. That prayer caused him to come back. And to do exactly what Jesus said, when you come back, you teach and train and restore and love and care for my my brethren. You care for this group right here, these guys. That, my friends, that, beloved, is 
the work of our great high priest. He intercedes for you in prayer. And his prayers are effectual. They cause results. They keep you in God's love grip. That's, that is the way that the Father causes us to persevere. It's through the work of the Son and through the prayers of the Son. It's all Jesus. Ascension truth number six, the ascension shows that Christ has become our heavenly legal representative. Think attorney. Romans 8, 31 through 34. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Interceding is a legal term. He is our advocate, our attorney, because we have a dirty devil who's up there constantly making allegations against us, picking up on the little sins and things that we commit and pleading his case before the Father. You need to let these Christians go, Father. God, look at them. They're a disaster. All they do is disgrace your name. They deglorify you. They're horrible. Look what Phil's doing. Look what Carl's doing. Look what Tom's doing. Come on, God. You can't possibly love these people. He argues this day and night, it says in the book of Revelation. But we have an attorney there who is defending us and saying, don't listen to that, putz. Don't listen to his allegations. Yeah, I know that some of what he's saying is true. I, I know what Phil's up to. I know how he makes mistakes and he fails. But you know what? I died on that cross, so those failings would be covered. We have a legal representative, and we need one, because God does deal in terms of legality. He is a judge. And we have the best. We don't have Jacobian Myers. We've got Jesus. All right? Well, it's amazing. It's amazing what he does for us. The ascension brings that about. He goes and he takes the right-hand seat of God and he becomes our, not just our king and all these things, but he becomes our lawyer, our attorney. Ascension truth number seven. The ascension initiated, paved the way for, started the coming of the helper. Who's the helper? The Holy Spirit. Jesus doesn't ascend. We don't have the Holy Spirit. John 14, 16. This is Jesus speaking. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Jesus is saying, I'm going to leave. I'm going to go. I'm going to ascend. I'm going to go back to the Father. I'm going to go back to glory. It's going to be great. I'm going to be up there. But when I get there, I'm going to ask the Father to send you one who will help you. Who will also help you persevere. Who will help you in your times of weakness. Who will help you when you can't make decisions and figure things out. John 16, 7. I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. Now, of course, when He said this to them, they were like, I don't get it. What evidence do we have that the ascension led to the coming of the Helper? Pentecost. The day of Pentecost, when the, when the Holy Spirit was sent and came 3,000 men were saved. 3,000 people were saved. And on and on and on. People saved, people saved, people saved. Evidence for the coming of the Helper is represented in the day of Pentecost. And, and in your own life, if you name the name of Christ today, if Christ is your Savior, it's, that's evidence that the Spirit is here in you because you'll never get to that place on your own. You need His aid and help and work. I like, how, uh, I like how he refers to him as the helper in, in, in John 14, 16. He is our helper, and helper translates out in the Greek. It has the idea of someone who walks alongside of you. 
This, the, the, the Holy Spirit is, is our helper, but not only is he our helper, he is our greatest companion. He is the greatest companion to the believer, to the one who is in Christ. He is there to help. He is there to defend. And that helper term, in some of your translations, it says comforter. So we would think, okay, so if he's a comforter, he's one who brings consolation when we're hurting and broken. Absolutely. But I like the way the ESV translated it as helper. That's a broader term. It doesn't just mean consolation. It doesn't mean just in times when I'm hurting and I'm broken and things aren't going in a certain way or we, you know, a bef- tragedy has befallen. I mean, he comforts us during those times, but it's broader than that. He's a helper. He helps us in every way to become like Christ. And that's the ultimate goal of salvation, is to be made like the Son. He doesn't ascend. We don't get the Spirit. There's no Pentecost. There's no salvation anywhere other than with maybe that 120. And they had the Spirit poured out upon them on Pentecost as well. They weren't functioning in the full-time presence of the Spirit. The Spirit came upon them first in that upper room, the tongues, tongues of flyer deal. Uh, flyer, the tongues of fire deal. Tongues of flyer. That's what happens when you just you know, spout stuff off. You blend things together. You get a little older. You say some really dumb things. Oh, it's amazing. He sent the helper. He goes and he sends the helper. Now I want you to go... And, and I want you to indwell the church and help the church to persevere. I think primarily the Spirit comes to us so that we can engage in ministry. Because think about what happened before the Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. There wasn't a whole lot going on. And then when the Spirit came, those believers were filled and everyone's proclaiming the gospel in these various languages. I mean, the Spirit empowers the church for mission and for ministry. Without the Spirit, we're operating in our own strength. We're operating with our own wisdom. And that's never going to be good. That's a bad thing. Ascension truth number eight. The Ascension shows that Christ received gifts for His church. You know, he, he leads this victory parade in heaven and he obtains gifts for his church. And these are spiritual gifts, the reference. Ephesians 4.8, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, right? And he gave gifts to men. Now you just think about that for a moment. He obtains the spiritual gifts at that moment of ascension. Those spiritual gifts are given to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and distributes them among believers so that we can serve one another. That's amazing. If you're a believer, you have at least one spiritual gift that that God wants you to use for His glory and, and for the building and edification of the church. He's in the parade. He gets the gifts. You know, I have the, it gives me the, the image in my mind of like flowers. You know how they throw flowers at these things to people? You know, they throw the flowers out and stuff. Not rice like at a wedding, but flowers and gifts are bestowed upon the victorious king. The very gifts that were bestowed upon our victorious king during his processional were the very gifts that we would use to love and encourage and spurn one on. To build each other up. They're spiritual gifts. Not stuff that's going to go on the mantle. Do you have to water all the time? It's going to eventually dilapidate, fall apart, die. These are spiritual gifts. Amazing. It's truly amazing what the ascension represents. We've got a couple more here. Ascension truth number nine. The ascension shows that Christ went to prepare a place for his people. You know what verse is coming to mind here, right? John 14, 2, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? The ascension leads to Jesus setting up and and. and orchestrating and dialing in heaven for to be a dwelling place for his people. 
He literally ascends and goes there. He does all these, look at all these things that he does. He goes there actually to prepare a place for us. He says, in my father's house are many rooms. That must be a pretty serious mansion. Right? I mean, you know, I've seen some pretty impressive places. I like Downton Abbey. That's pretty cool. I don't know why I admitted that with men in the room. Um, but, you know, I like that show, and I like that mansion, the High Clear Mansion and all that. I'm into that. But, man, what, what Jesus is talking about here is a zillion of those built together. I don't know how that works out or what it looks like, but it does say in Scripture, too, not, no eye has ever seen, no mind can comprehend what God has prepared for those who love him. Jesus is up there. He's either already done it or he's working on it. He's preparing a place for his people. And it's quite extraordinary. And there's different levels to that. You have a millennial kingdom that's coming. You have an eternal kingdom that's coming. All of that, he's working on it. I'm going up there. I was down here to get you saved. I'm going up there so you'll have a place that you can live for eternity as a saved person. I got, I'm going to fit this place for you, but I'm going to also fit you for heaven. Ascension truth number 10, the last. The ascension shows how Christ will return to retrieve his church. Acts 1, 10 through 11. And while they were gazing into heaven, this is the disciples, they're standing there. Jesus just went up in this glory cloud, right? They're watching it happen, it's playing out. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. Is this Elijah and Moses? Remember how they visited at the Transfiguration? the Mount of Transfiguration. Maybe they're angels. They're standing on each side of them. And they said this, men of Galilee, speaking to the disciples, why do you stand looking into heaven? It's almost like, hey, you got something to do. (laughs) Don't stand here and keep staring and gazing into heaven. This Jesus, they say, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, there's the ascension, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Oh, man. Matthew 24, 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds, Shekinah glory of heaven with power and great glory. There's his return. As he went, he's coming back in the same fashion. Revelation 1, 7, behold, he is coming with the clouds, storm clouds, rain clouds, weird clouds. No, Shekinah glory. He is coming with the Shekinah glory in full, raging, blazing glory, and every eye will see him. Now that's interesting. How does that happen? That's a miracle. Even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Oh man, he was the Messiah. Too late. When the disciples were standing at, at, the, at the pinnacle of the Mount of Olives watching this play out and watching Jesus ascend in this glory cloud, they were reminded of the transfiguration. They were reminded of Exodus. But here they are seeing this happen. They're saying to themselves, and these angels, they, they're perplexed. These angels or whoever they are say, you, you see what you're seeing here? Let me, let me help you realize something. This is how he's going to come back in glory. No wonder they rejoiced. Well, we saw our Lord and Savior go through just total hell on earth. We see him leaving glory. You're saying he's coming back, so he's got his glory back. That's enough for them to rejoice. You see how the tides turned here? They started to understand the ascension. The way that he ascended is the way that he will return. Not only at the second coming when he comes to establish his millennial kingdom, but also he appears in the clouds. It says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it says that he will appear in the clouds to retrieve his church. That's how he's going to take us out of here before the tribulation period, before the seals are broken, before the bowls are dumped out, before the scrolls are open, all that stuff. 
when all that judgment is poured out and all that wrath is poured out upon the earth, he's going to appear in Shekinah glory in the cloud, take us out of here. Seven years later or so, he comes back in the Shekinah glory cloud, but this time he comes back with his angels, armies, and with his church, and he makes an end of the Babylon and the enemy nations and establishes his millennial reign. As he went, he shall return. Closing. Let's recap. What does the ascension have to do with the work of Christ? Because that's what this series is about, and that's the question I ask every week, and I try to parallel it all up. What have we learned? The ascension shows that Christ is our victorious king who conquered sin, Satan, death, and hell. The ascension shows that Christ is supreme and above all, he is sovereign. Everyone and everything has been placed under his dominion and rule. The ascension shows that Christ returned to glory when he returned to heaven. Got his glory back. The Shekinah glory cloud, we see it there in so many other ways. The ascension shows that Christ completed his atoning work. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. You, you don't sit down if there's work to do. You don't sit down if you've got more to do. If the atonement isn't finished, you can't sit. He sat down. Done. The ascension shows that Christ has become our great high priest. He's interceding for you, believer. He's causing you to persevere through his effectual prayer. You're not causing yourself to persevere. If it were up to you, you'd already be toast, just as I would. The ascension shows that Christ has become our heavenly legal representative. He is our attorney. He is the one that counters all of the defamation and allegation of the evil one who never tires of just berating and slamming and slandering and hammering us up there. The ascension shows that Christ has sent the helper, the Holy Spirit. That the Spirit himself helps us to persevere and causes that and prepares us and equips us and empowers us for mission and for ministry and even for just daily living. That term helper, I didn't say it earlier, it's associated with power. You have power if you have the Spirit. The ascension shows that Christ received gifts for his church. He didn't get flimsy little roses. He got our spiritual gifts and he sent the spirit with them to distribute them. And the spirit still has a full bank load of them. And he's still putting them in people as he saves people. We should discover which spiritual gift or gifts we have been given by the spirit because of Christ. And we should use them to build up his church for his glory. I said that. The ascension shows that Christ has prepared a place for us with him in heaven. Don't get the wrong idea. It's not that heaven wasn't suitable for us, but Christ has done something special there for us. No eye has seen. It's intense. It's amazing. It's beyond your human capability and function. You can't get your mind around what exactly he's done because it's that good. It's better than anything we've ever seen on this side of glory beyond our comprehension now. The ascension shows how Christ will return to retrieve His church before the tribulation period. Shekinah glory. He will come just as He went on the Shekinah glory cloud. These are just ten simple truths about the ascension and how it relates to the work of Christ. We can now see how important this event and doctrine is to the Christian faith and to our lives, can we not? Hopefully we will ponder the ascension, we'll think about it, what he did there and through that more often. And we'll also learn to take full advantage of what Christ has provided through it. He's our priest, he's our king, he sent us our comforter. I mean, he's done so, there's so many benefits that come through him leaving no wonder the work that's been done by him is exponentially greater in his absence than it was during his time here. It's the way that he set it all up. Now that our understanding has been somewhat deepened on the ascension, it's time for us to rejoice. That's what it should lead to. 
What an amazing Savior we have. What an amazing God we have. What an amazing King and great High Priest that we have. That He did all these things. Through His leaving, through His exit, He has brought us so much more. I love Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 14, which talks about our spiritual blessings. He has so much for us and at our disposal now. And may we not tragically miss what He's done for us. When Christ says that I come to give them life abundant, you will never realize how the abundant life that he has for you until you begin to realize what he's provided for you and what makes this life abundant. That's why we have to study the scripture. We want to know what have you done for us? What have you have for us? What have you accomplished? I've just been given 10 examples. Now that our understanding has been broadened just a little bit, just a little bit, because it's so much more than anything I could ever cover in a thousand sermons, we must rejoice. We'll close and leave you with an excellent statement from the late great Dutch Reformed missionary Andrew Murray. Love this guy. He wrote, Faith has in its foundation four great cornerstones on which the building rests. The divinity of Christ the incarnation, the atonement on the cross, and the ascension to the throne. The last is the most wonderful, the crown of all the rest, the perfect revelation of what God has made Christ for us. And so in the Christian life, it is the most important, the glorious fruit of all that goes before. Amen.